from the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Kendall Seesmeyer, your host. It's November, which means that election season has come and passed. On Tuesday, voters all across the country took to the polls and made one thing crystal clear. Abortion rights matter to voters everywhere. In Ohio, voters passed an amendment to enshrine abortion rights in the state constitution, making it the seventh state to protect abortion access through the ballot box. In Virginia, voters elected a full pro-abortion rights majority in their state general assembly, and in Pennsylvania, voters maintained a pro-abortion majority in their state Supreme Court. As we look to 2024, abortion rights will continue to be on the ballot, meaning that anti-abortion opponents may continue to chip away at voting rights as a mechanism to block the will of voters, using tactics like racial gerrymandering and voter intimidation. But all voters deserve an equal opportunity to exercise their rights and participate in democracy. Today, we'll get an election results update from Jessica Ahrens, Senior Policy Counsel at the ACLU, who has been working to secure victories for reproductive freedom at the ballot box. Then, we'll speak with Sophia Lynn Lakin, Director of the ACLU's Voting Rights Project, to talk about how her team is using the recent voting rights victory at the Supreme Court to fight battles all across the country. Let us begin. Jess, welcome to At Liberty, and thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to be here. So for context for our listeners, we're speaking on the morning of Wednesday, November 8th, uh, which is the morning after the election. And I guess I just have to start here with asking you, giving you the lovely task of sharing the good news, what elections and ballot measures were we watching for last night and what was the result? Well, the result was that we won and we won big time. I mean, Basically, abortion rights swept the board. From my perspective, what I was most focused on was the Ohio ballot measure, which would enshrine a right to reproductive freedom, including abortion, in the state constitution. And that continues the streak of abortion rights winning in every ballot campaign since Roe was overturned last year. We are now seven for seven in terms of ballot measures involving abortion rights. And then in addition, abortion was a key issue in elections in Virginia, Pennsylvania, and Kentucky. Um, And in each of those races, it really was the winning decisive issue. Um, In Virginia, the entire General Assembly was up for re-election, all the seats in the House and Senate. And they not only helped maintain the Senate, but they flipped the House. And that means they will continue to have a critical firewall against Governor Yunkin, who campaigned on imposing a 15-week ban. And he tried to frame it as a, quote, unquote, reasonable compromise. But luckily, voters saw through that, and they understood that a ban is a ban. And so Virginia, we know, will remain the only state in the South not to pass or put in place a new ban on abortion after Roe being overturned last year. In Pennsylvania, there was a Supreme Court race and uh, the pro-civil liberties candidate won. The contrast between the candidates was quite clear. And in Kentucky, um, Governor Bashir was reelected against a virulently anti-abortion opponent. 
Amazing. This is so huge. It's so exciting to see that actually when the decision is given to the people, when it's not being decided by a politician or by a court, abortion access is very popular. People affirm abortion access when they have the opportunity to do so. I want to dig in a little bit to the Ohio ballot measure specifically. Listeners who follow that liberty closely will know that we featured volunteers and organizers from the state of Ohio who were really working to get the vote out amidst quite a campaign to stop them, to really stop them. And so what was the margin of victory in Ohio and what does this victory now mean for reproductive services for Ohioans? The latest numbers I'm seeing is that the Reproductive Freedom Amendment won by a 13-point margin, 56 to 43. I just refreshed my feed on <laughs> the New York Times, and that's what I'm seeing. And when I tell you that all the polling running up to Election Day was showing that the race was in a dead heat, that it was neck and neck, it was anyone's game. And this vote could not be taken for granted. Mm. To see that kind of margin is incredible. It's a blowout. It is a decisive victory. And I think it it just shows the potency of the issue. You know, a lot of pundits originally were saying, oh, this will fade. You know, people, voters will forget about Roe being overturned. No, voters are not going to forget easily that politicians are trying to take away their bodily autonomy and interfere with their personal medical decisions. And it's it's really encouraging. And especially, I mean, this margin is incredible, especially when you consider everything that the opposition threw at us. I mean, anti-abortion politicians control every lever of power in the state of Ohio, in the government. And they have abused their positions in order to thwart this amendment. And they failed. They called a special election in August to try to raise the threshold to pass ballot measures from a simple majority to 60%, a supermajority. And through leaked recordings, we know that they were very much trying to do it as a way to make it harder to pass the abortion rights amendment. Then, in addition, um, the Secretary of State wrote a very biased, misleading ballot, quote unquote, summary. It was longer than the actual measure itself. And then in the final months of the election, uh, the Secretary of State purged voters, nearly 30,000 voters, from the voter file. So they really tried everything they could. And again, thankfully, voters saw through it and they did not succeed. I mean, it's, it's, it's truly a testament to the work that so many Ohioans did boots on the ground work. The volunteers were just simply incredible. When we interviewed Alexis Morris Rowe on the podcast a few weeks ago, the commitment and dedication that she displayed and demonstrated, it was amazing. So just big shout out to all of our partners in Ohio and all of the regular people who got involved, who gave of their time and their talents to make this happen. What is this going to mean for Ohioans? The impact of this amendment cannot be understated. The amendment, as I said, enshrines the right to reproductive freedom in the state constitution, including decisions about pregnancy, contraception, abortion, miscarriage care, and fertility treatments. 
and it will put an end to the state's extreme abortion ban. And it means that Ohioans will have the right to make these personal medical decisions for themselves without government interference and seek access to the health care they need under state law for generations to come. And I imagine that Ohio, sitting geographically where it does, also opens up access for a lot of other folks in, in the region who might be seeking care. That's right. I mean, since Roe was overturned, we've seen more than a dozen states ban abortion entirely or almost entirely, and the South and and the Midwest primarily. And now with Ohio being moved into kind of a safe column, we, you know, it's it's going to shore up the access uh, in the region, you know, as it was when Ohio's six-week abortion ban went into effect for 82 days last year. And it really wrecked havoc on people's lives and just created chaos and unnecessary suffering for so many families. So now Ohioans won't have to fear that as their future. And it also means that while some people will continue to have to travel long distances to get essential health care that they need, at least they will have somewhere in the region to go. And hopefully it won't be as far to travel as it might be elsewhere. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're in a situation where we're working to pry open every opportunity for access, but by no means is this the ideal. Roe was in many ways the floor, not the ceiling. And so it wasn't enough then. And, you know, now we're in a situation where we are fighting for every opportunity to help people get the care that they need and that they deserve. So even though we're very cheerful, we know that there is still work to be done. And to that end, Jess, what can you tell us about the ways that the ACLU got involved in the effort to secure abortion access at the ballot box this November? Well, first of all, yes. I mean, the opportunity is there. We saw that opportunity in Ohio early on, just as we saw it in Michigan, and we were all in, the ACLU was all in, and really proud to partner with folks on the ground. You know, the Ohio Uniteds for Reproductive Rights Coalition did a fantastic job. They ran such a thoughtful, precise, disciplined campaign. And as you mentioned also, I mean, the, the volunteers, the donors, the energy on the ground was palpable. We were so proud to be part of this effort from the beginning exploration phase through the get out the vote effort. Uh, We were deeply involved with offering policy expertise and organizing and campaign support. We ultimately donated $6 million to the effort from across the organization. Um, And we also deployed 50 volunteers from national and affiliate ACLU staff from across the country to be on the ground to add organizing capacity in the run up to election day. It was just a monumental effort within our organization and with all our partners and all the volunteers on the ground and a testament to how important it is. But it is a major investment. I imagine other states are looking at this as opportunity for them to put abortion on the ballot in their state. What do you think we'll see in the future as this has been so clearly evidenced as a way, a path forward for abortion access. We've already seen two measures, ballot measures uh, related to abortion rights that have been confirmed 
for legislatively referred and confirmed for the ballot for 2024 and at least half a dozen other measures that have been filed, citizen-initiated petitions that have been filed in at least six other states that are working their way through the qualification process. And we'll see. Uh, 2024 could be a very busy year indeed. Oh, no. <laughs> All I want in a day after the election is like rest for people. That's where my own no came from. But no, that is very actually very exciting. It's good to have the opportunity to give this to the voters. Yeah. And well, and we we certainly are, you know, working with our partners in every state where there is an opportunity um, to look at what the best path forward is to secure abortion rights and protect reproductive freedom. And are those pathways? Obviously, we've talked about uh, ballot measures. We saw it in Ohio. We've talked about maintaining pro-abortion majorities in state legislatures and in the state Supreme Courts. Are those uh, indicative of the three kind of major pathways that we see as uh, options to keep abortion access available to folks? Absolutely. I mean, we're really deploying every tool in the toolbox. And so, you know, that's whether it's in the legislatures with electoral work, you know, candidate races, issue education about candidate races, um, that includes judicial races where those are an opportunity, you know, an option in the streets and at the ballot box. And also with our democracy work. I mean, as I was saying earlier, given all the dirty tricks that the opposition tried to pull, we can expect that that's part of their playbook. They know they can't win fair and square on the issue. They know the voters are not with them. Access to abortion depends on access to the ballot box. And so we are going to continue on all those fronts to make sure that our rights are protected and secured. There are still 20 million people who can become pregnant living in states that have put in place abortion bans since Roe was overturned. And not all of those states have a path to the ballot. Some of those states have been heavily gerrymandered and their lawmakers do not represent the will of the people. And our democratic institutions have broken down. And that is why we also need in 2024 to vote for members of Congress and a president that will fight to protect reproductive freedom, including abortion rights, and restore those rights at the federal level. Yes, thank you so much for outlining that. And also for teeing us up so beautifully, you know, we spoke with Sophia Lynn Lagan, who is the director of the ACLU's Voting Rights Project, specifically about the ways that her team are using litigation tactics at the Supreme Court and all across the country to really address the insidious, unconstitutional gerrymandering that is happening. Sophia, welcome to At Liberty, and thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. So before we get into the ongoing voting race cases your team is navigating, I want to touch base on what we've seen just in this election cycle over the last few weeks leading up to Tuesday. So just six days after Ohio voters began receiving ballots for the upcoming November election, we saw Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose cancel a little over 26,000 voter registrations in the state. And then in Virginia, nearly 3,400 formerly incarcerated people were mistakenly purged from the state's voter rolls. 
The Virginia state government says that it's fixing the issue. Sophia, you've been through so many election cycles. Is this surprising to you? And and what are the voting rights violations that we watch out for during an election cycle? And what can we do about what we see? So unfortunately, none of this is something we haven't seen before. Um, the types of things that can come up really run the gamut. Voter purges, removing people from the rolls is one item that we see, unfortunately, come up. And of course, if you're not registered to vote, you aren't going to be able to cast a ballot. Um, in some cases, you might be able to cast a provisional ballot, but whether those ballots end up counting is a question in some places. So it's not the same thing. And of course, sort of run of the mill, I say run of the mill, but things that are acts of nature can happen at various points, hurricanes that disrupt election, uh, voter registration, electricity, and these types of things happen. And we're listening on the ground, making sure that we can go run into court and make sure that people have all the opportunity they should uh, to cast a ballot. Thank you so much for that overview. It sounds like a lot of different things can happen. Um, There's just seemingly no limit to the chaos that can exist within an election cycle when it comes to voter protection issues and making sure that people have access to the ballot. We've seen the voting rights landscape really change over the last you know number of years, and I think you know after the 2020 election cycle, even after the midterm election cycle, I think there was a lot of concern that perhaps voting rights victories would be really hard to come by. I want to kind of touch back in on that concern that people were having uh, a few years ago. How are you feeling about the landscape of what it looks like to fight for voting rights today in 2023 in this election cycle and as we move forward in 2024? Sure. I absolutely agree that, you know, going into um, this, I would say, in 2020 and uh, 2022 and even last year, there was a lot of concern uh, and and it was a well-founded concern because we have been historically facing very a very difficult uphill battle when it comes especially to litigation using sort of our traditional tools that we've been using years you know over the over the decades tools that Congress has given us um, to fight voter suppression to fight racial discrimination in voting that had been present in t- this country's history since its founding. Um, and we saw that even as recently as 2019 in the Burnovich versus Democratic National Committee, a decision which really made it much more difficult to challenge um, using some of our traditional tools. Um, I would say that the uphill battle in federal courts remains, mm-hmm. but um, that has never stopped us from continuing to innovate and continue to press forward and continue to fight these battles because sometimes you do win. And even when you're not expecting, and of course that happened this past summer in our Milligan, Allen versus Milligan case that came out of the Supreme Court in a very historic redistricting case challenging the congressional map out of Alabama as violating what is called Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. I'm not sure any of us were anticipating kind of the full uh, win that we obtained with the Supreme Court agreeing with the district court below, affirming that decision that the map violated federal law, that 
that Alabama needed to draw a new map that provided two opportunity districts for Black voters to elect candidates that they preferred uh, for the first time in Alabama's history. And um, it's it was truly historic and took us all aback and has created just an immense, immense momentum uh, for our redistricting cases across the South. We have seven statewide redistricting cases still ongoing. We just won a case following a trial in Georgia. It was a case that I had led in September to trial. We just received a win and we have three more statewide cases going to trial in the next six months. The hope that we'll get new maps, fairer maps in place in advance of the 2024 elections. So before we move on, just because I think it's really important to be really clear, when we talk about Black voters in Alabama not having a fair shake and having their vote count, what are we actually talking about when we're worried about Black voters having their vote diluted based on maps that are drawn? About 27% of the population in Alabama is Black, and yet only one of seven congressional districts, about 14%, provided Black voters an opportunity to come together as a voting community and be able to elect a candidate they chose as opposed to their votes being dispersed. So either, and you may have heard these terms before in the world of redistricting, either a community is cracked between two districts. So you can imagine drawing a line straight through a community and splitting them on two different districts. And all of a sudden, they can't band together to elect a candidate that they as a community would would elect otherwise. Or you can imagine a situation where a community that could, in two different districts, um, have enough influence to elect candidates in two different districts that the community prefers, and yet they are stuffed into just one district. So it limits their ability to have an impact um, in the politics of the state more broadly. And that was what was happening in Alabama. Yeah, thank you so much for that. Redistricting can sometimes feel really elusive to us, so it's really helpful to kind of needle in and and really talk about what that actually means. But the one in Allen versus Milligan was particularly notable also because the progress of similar pending cases in other states really hinged on its outcome. So I want to speak more in depth on your work in other states in a moment, but I'm wondering broadly, what is the momentum that you've seen from this case and its nationwide impact? Well, the issue at stake in Allen versus Milligan was whether or not the framework for determining whether or not a state's map or jurisdiction's map illegally diluted or diminished or minimized the votes of certain people, certain racial minorities, um, was the correct framework. Um, And whether or not the Supreme Court was going to adopt what Alabama was suggesting um, and essentially import an intentional discrimination requirement. And the Supreme Court said, nope, (laughs) we have decided this issue many years ago. Congress came in and told us, no, we do not want intentional discrimination standard here. Um, It was really a green light for us at the ACLU, a moment where we said, okay, let's move as quick as possible to get as many fair maps are fairer maps at least in place for the 2024 election because we've already demonstrated 
that these are violations under the standard the Supreme Court has approved. And we've, we've moved pretty quickly already towards that goal. So we're going to talk through what you've been up to now. I want to move to Georgia, which you previewed. On October 26th, a federal court ruled that the state's legislative district maps discriminate against Black voters and must be redrawn. The decision followed a trial in September in Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity versus Raffensperger, a lawsuit brought by the ACLU, ACLU of Georgia, and Wilmer Hale on behalf of multiple groups and individual voters. We reached a victory. The court ordered the assembly to have a December 8th deadline for new equitable maps. What do you anticipate this redrawing process to look like? And do you think it's going to be comparable to what we saw with Alabama with Milligan? Are we smooth sailing from here? Like, what's going to happen? So so hard to know uh, what exactly we will see. Um, there are signs already that the tact that George is going to take is a little bit different. So, for example, what you often might see in a situation like this is the state um, seeking to stay the decision and um, essentially say, put it on hold while we appeal it so that and as effectively delay justice for people on the ground because you then have to wait and maybe wait a whole nother election cycle before you get new maps in place. And the state decided not to seek a stay. They sort of announced very publicly, we're going to appeal. So the the fact of the matter is, we are going to go to a special legislative session, which the governor has called on November 29th, to draw new maps. And we will be watching that process very vigilantly, like in Alabama, to make sure that the maps they put in place comply with what the district court had told them to do, which was to draw uh, maps that added two new state Senate districts to provide Black voters an opportunity to elect uh, their preferred candidates, as well as five new uh, state House seats uh, districts that provide Black voters an opportunity to elect their preferred candidates. And the judge was very clear that in drawing these new districts, the state could not change the opportunities that Black voters have in any other districts. So these needed to be additional districts. And we will see if December 8th rolls around and these maps are not complying with federal law, do not provide those opportunities, then there'll be some additional litigation, some additional hearings and evidence put before the court, I am sure. But the hope is that we will get some new maps in place for voting to begin on fairer maps. Georgia is obviously a very important state on anyone's electoral map. And so I wouldn't want to be Georgia if I had Sophia watching me. (laughs) That's all I'm saying. The final redistricting case that I want to mention is a U.S. Supreme Court case, Alexander versus South Carolina State Conference of the NAACP. Oral arguments wrapped in early October for this case. How did this case come to be and what is being argued here? How will this case proceed? Sure. So this case is a little bit different than some of the other cases in that it is a case brought under the U.S. Constitution. And the claim is that the state intentionally discriminated and unconstitutionally considered race when drawing the the lines, um, specifically around uh, Charleston County anchored Congressional District 1. And they did so for partisan gain. And the fact of the matter is you cannot use an excuse to say, 
well, we really just want Republicans to win, but then turn around and use someone's race in order to obtain that result. And that's what we saw in a multi-week trial that was held about a year ago in this case, that uh, there was ultimately this exiling of Black voters outside of Congressional District 1 in order to obtain a certain level of, of Republican voting, essentially, in that particular district. And we put on very robust evidence on this. So that was that was what was at stake. We had a trial. We won before another three-judge district court. And the state, unsurprisingly, appealed. And these types of cases go straight to the U.S. Supreme Court who then um, heard argument in early October. We will be hopeful and watch really closely. So redistricting and gerrymandering are not the only means uh, that we see infringement on voting rights rear its ugly head. Over the summer, we saw courts from several states make rulings on bills that would contribute to voter suppression. Um, I want to start with the most recent news out of Texas concerning an anti-voter law known as SB1. The federal trial against the bill concluded on October 20th after nearly six weeks of testimony from dozens of witnesses. Closing arguments are set for January 12th, and the judge will issue his final ruling at a future date. What does SB1 entail, and what are the plaintiffs saying in their challenge? So SB1 is an omnibus anti-voter law, so it has numerous provisions that impact all aspects of voting, um, mail voting, mail ballot assistance. There are new ID requirements put in place and um, different types of pieces. We actually challenged one aspect of this law. It was a requirement that a voter use the same four digits, sort of the same ID number that the voter used when they registered to vote, whether it could be a social security number, could have been a driver's license number, could have been a state ID number, in order for them to get a mail ballot, it had to be the exact same number. And they also had to put it on their mail ballot. And so if they guessed wrong, their ballot, they A, did not get the ballot in the mail, or B, their ballot was not counted. And in 2022, the law was in effect and approximately 40,000 voters in the period in that period of 2022 elections did not have their ballots not counted because of this law. This practice just violates what's called the materiality provision of the Civil Rights Act. This law, this this provision that says it's protection against throwing out ballots, disenfranchising voters for immaterial paperwork errors. And we said this isn't it not relevant. It is a trivial issue. It shouldn't be a memory test. And we won that actually even before trial started. So there were some pieces of it that we were able to already eke out a win that should be in place, hopefully for the 2024 election cycle. But there are other provisions that impact all different kinds of voters, voters with disabilities, access to the polls and so forth that are still at play post-trial. So we will see how those, those proceed. That's a really good context to have. And that description of needing to have the same number on three different documents, I think I registered right when I was 18. It feels like it's really easy to see through something like that. Not surprising that someone would try to get away with it, but um, I'm glad we're on it. 
Another law that I wanted to bring up that seems to also perhaps punitively impact voter engagement organizations, this is Florida's SB 7050, which was blocked by a federal court at the start of July. This law targeted voter registration, civic engagement, and political speech. Can you explain more about SB 7050 and the goal of the lawsuit that was against it? The law had a number of different provisions. So yet one of these other kind of omnibus restrictions that made it more difficult, imposed more requirements or for the organizations to engage in certain kinds of activities that they had in the past to make their work more effective in terms of registering voters. One of the provisions that we focused on in, in the in our challenge was this ban on non-citizens of any kind from being able to handle or collect voter registration applications. And that really put the organizations that we represent as well as their volunteers, their employees, some of whom were non-citizens, um, but longtime legal legal permanent residents, really put them in a bind. It was a $50,000 fine for each time you violated. So for many of our organizations, that's a big chunk of their budget and um, basically would, would make it impossible for them to, to continue their operations had we not gone in and challenged and able to get a temporary block on this provision. And so we're, it's on appeal, like many of our cases are, but in the meantime, um, these organizations have been able to continue their really, really vital work in ensuring that their communities have access to people that are going to engage and help them get registered to vote, navigate that process. Thanks so much for that description. It's so important to understand kind of all the ways in which voter suppression can manifest in order for us to understand, you know, what to look for. And you are clearly an encyclopedia of voter voting rights knowledge on active cases, on past cases. It's very, very impressive, Sophia, and I really, really appreciate it. As we wrap up here, you know, following the decision in Allen versus Milligan, we saw some commentators predict that as many as five Republican House seats in Congress may be replaced by Democratic ones in 2024. You know, and I think one of the things that we want to be clear about is that we're here for the voters, period. We're not here for a certain party of voters. Um, we're here to make sure that everyone gets their their fair shake. But what do you say to folks who are like, oh, see, you're shifting electoral outcomes. That's what you're trying to do here, Sophia. What's your response to that kind of dialogue? There's a lot of education that has to happen in those moments of saying, while this may have this partisan valence to it, that just means that certain party needs to do a little bit more work in terms of engaging those voters if that is how it's being perceived. At the end of the day, our business is about ensuring that everybody has access and that their vote is counted equally, again, no matter what their partisan affiliation is. And I would add this because it bothers me, and I will say it. But the focus on Congress to uh, exclusion of the work that is being done at the state level, at the local level, I think is also an incredible mistake. 
in terms of people understanding the importance of those state elections, those local elections in their lives. When it comes to things that folks that are in the news that people are caring about, these ballot initiatives in certain places like Ohio, Pennsylvania, the state Supreme Court cases, policies about transgender justice, about reproductive rights, about housing policy, you name it, those are being pushed to the state level and the local level. If you care about those issues, you need to be caring about who is representing you in your state houses, the state level, and potentially if you care about educational policy, for example, what's happening in your local school board elections and whatnot. And so sometimes it can be quite frustrating, too, for people to be so laser-focused on what's happening at the federal level without being aware of what's going on at their state level that has such a big impact on their day-to-day lives. Sounds like I provided a ripe opportunity for you to air that grievance. (laughs) I think it is really, really important that we acknowledge and understand and and vote our values all the way up and down the ballot. And we already have seen it play out consistently. If you look at um, abortion rights being on the ballot, it's been pretty significant to see when it's actually up to the voters what happens in individual states. Sophia, I just want to say congrats on the new role. You were recently named the director of the Voting Rights Project. It's so exciting to see you at the helm of our voting rights team. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me on. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. Until next week, stay strong. At Liberty is a production of the ACLU, produced by me, Kendall Seesmeyer, and Vanessa Handy. This episode was edited by Carrie Daniels. Julian Silva-Forbes is our intern.